Um, so yes, now what I've done in the, in, in the wisdom of time, or maybe you could call me the chicken of time, I've left the hardest to last, which is tonight. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we want to come, be, come before you humbly, um, wanting to hear from you, and in no way, Lord, wanting to be proud, because, Lord, you are close to the humble, but far from the proud. We want to hear your word. We want your word to soak our souls tonight, Lord, that we may evermore draw deeper into your things and away from those things, Lord, that would take us from you. I pray, Father, for your blessing, Lord, upon these words tonight, that they may honour you and favour each one of us that are here this evening. Amen. Now, there was one other thing I didn't want to say. I want to say a thanks to the band. Now, it's my last chance to say thanks to the band, and I don't know what it means to change the chords to make it easier. Uh, for us, where I Sam? I don't know what that means because the only time I change chords is in my pajamas, really. <laughs> but I know you go to a lot of effort. So can we just give them a big thanks? Um, lifts, lifts my heart. So on to more serious things. Pedestal of love. When I, when I started here seven weeks ago, um, I spoke about the pedestal of worship. Can you remember what the pedestal of worship was? <laughs> I did. Oh, I did too. Oh, well, we're going, to, we're going to have a long night tonight, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's a good excuse. <laughs> Pedestal of worship is truth. There's lots and lots of truth, uh, lots and lots of worship available in this, in, in this world. But Jesus says... That the worship the Father at once is worship that is in spirit and in truth. So we have many, many people that are worshipping in spirit. Their hearts and bodies and minds are all engaged in whatever the object of worship is, but they're not worshipping in truth. Now, for the truth, Jesus, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, this afternoon, we had a mighty win. Holden had a mighty win on Bathurst and there was a lot of cheering when Craig Lowndes crossed that line. Those guys were worshipping in spirit. Um, when the footy, somebody wins a footy game, you worship in spirit. Your body is jumping because your spirit's jumping inside and your body is controlled by your spirit. But that's not the sort of worship that's in spirit and in truth. It's just worship that's in spirit. But what the Lord's looking for is worship that's in spirit and in, tr and in truth. So that what happens is we think in this world, this is a sleight of hand. It, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a sleight of hand that, that, that echoes through the world, but it's false. That as long as my worship is sincere, it is acceptable. But I can be sincerely wrong. Sincerity isn't what makes worship acceptable. Truth is, spirit and in truth. But that's John 14, 27. So Isaac, that's what you missed. So that was the easy one. I think that's a sleight of hand that's gone through the world. The, worship, the only thing that you need to have in worship is that worship is sincere. 
Now, there's another one that's gone through the world. It's the pedestal of love. So that which supports, that, that which supports worship needs to be truth. It holds worship up. It's truth. Now, what holds love up? Context for this. Context for this, I first delivered this sermon uh, just over 12 months ago, but I've been working on it for a long time, and I've worked it up a lot since then. This is not what I delivered 12 months ago, but it's based on that. So it comes out, well, the the church I was working with at the time, uh, last year's same-sex marriage debate. And you see why I left this to last. And the plebiscite that was subsequently um, won or lost, whichever way you look at it, after, um, after I delivered this. So this was delivered in September last year when everything started to, to become very warm in society. Now, I want to say that what I'm talking about tonight, none of us are removed from the impacts of this same-sex marriage debate Uh, the spread of homosexuality and the approval of homosexuality and, of course, then the ongoing approval and development of what they call gender fluidity. Now, I'm not even sure that two years ago I even ever heard of that phrase, but I know three years ago I hadn't heard of gender fluidity. So things are moving rapidly within society. So nobody within Western society is going to be... cannot be impacted by the results of these, this new form of uh, wicked thinking. Now, when I was in Mongolia, just, just a few hours ago, last January, I was speaking to the Mongolians and I said, these guys in Mongolia, the people I was teaching were, were 500k out of the capital city. They were closer to Russia, closer to Siberia than they were to Western society and they'd heard about our, our plebiscite. They'd heard about the vote. And, and these Mongolians, they're really young Christians, are shaking their heads. It's, well, it's a foreign language, but I understood shaking head, you know. So guys, even that which is not Western and doesn't hold Western values and now can start to see the impacts. So we need, there's a necessity to grasp that love is, to, that love is no standalone emotion. Uh, that is absent from any wider interconnections amidst life. For relationships, by definition, cannot be lived in a vacuum any more than I said last week that sin can be, connect, sin, uh, cannot, can be conduct, conducted in a vacuum. It's always going to have impacts. Love does not act from independence. It is not independent of that which is around it. In fact, the nature of love, by default, means it must be impacting, impacting those around them. Now, here's a little quote. The truth now is of disinterest. disinterest. It is an offence to speak the truth. Doctrines of cleansing through Jesus, sexual purity, hell and marriage are not welcomed. These are fought even in the church. Now, about four years ago, I was speaking in, in another church down closer to home and I was talking on whatever the subject was and I was used starting to talk about homosexuality as an illustration of the point. But the point was not, the sermon was not on this debate or anything because it hadn't even been invented four years ago. Now in the middle of that service is a Christian, Bible-believing, um, Jesus-loving church. It's not some wild figment of an evangelical imagination it's a very conservative, traditional-style church. 
So in the middle of this service, I'm starting to talk about things uh, that, that are illustrated in homosexuality. And a lady starts calling out to me from the middle of the church, the congregation, and she's starting to say, I don't like where you're going. Now, she repeated that. Please understand, and I hadn't got there at that point, please understand that what's happening within the church or what's happened without the church is now being fought even within the church. There is an ever-increasing discrimination against Christians and their belief. Radical gender politics denies Genesis 2 in even its most basic constructs of male and female. While Christian parents could be prosecuted for, a, for, a, uh, for affirming a child's biological sex. The voice of truth is suppressed and it is silent, silenced. Truth is sacrificed on the false altar of me. The divinely implanted compass to truth is jettisoned. Now that's a quote from a guy called Mario Murillo that I stumbled on in, in her, um, on, online. Online, I stumbled on it somewhere, doesn't matter where. I stole it, it was a good quote, but I've edited it. I've put some of my own thoughts in under quotes a while now, so I can't tell you who wrote what. But I tell you, I, most of that is a quote of this guy, Mario Murillo. Now, the Western world is now constructed upon two false assumptions. First false assumption is the absence of regulatory truth. Now, I've got to go back seven weeks, so please forgive me. But seven weeks ago, I taught that what I would learn, what I learned when I was uh, learning teaching in 1975, was that the truth is determined by the reader of the book and not by the author of the book. Now, 40 odd years ago, I could figure that was 180 degrees back to front. But what I was taught back then in 1975 is now multiplied for five decades, the best part of five decades. So truth no longer exists and it's in the mind of the hearer, it's not in the mind of the speaker. So we're now in this boat. The absence of any regulatory truth in society that's going to keep us on a path, a compass. And then the second thing which is more recent is the ever redefining of the worship of me. And that's gone from the immorality of the 60s and the sexual revolution, so this is what I can see, to now gender fluidity. I can do what I like. Now, I have to, well, I have, you have, we have to understand that I am formed by what informs me. Now, to use a trite but a tasteful example, I like donuts. It looks like I like donuts too, doesn't it? Because the things I take in are what forms me. Whether it's food or whether it's my thoughts, whether it's what I've been taught. So I imagine it's like this, and please forgive me if my imagination is correct. But there is now some child somewhere that's two or three years of age, and mum or dad goes to that child and say, you know, you don't need to be a boy or a girl, whatever child, you don't need to be a boy. If you like to be a girl, you can become a girl. Makes sense. I can't see where else his teaching's coming from. So that child is now informed, they've got no idea what the implications are, that child is now informed in a manner that will form that child's thinking. 
It is through the worship of me that I reap what I have sown, making life's mistakes and ignoring too that greater size of tomorrow. You can't talk about hell. You can't talk about judgment day. These things are no-nos. People don't want to hear this. There's too much great discomfort in it. It's too much offence. But we can't ignore it. We are going to meet the good Lord Jesus either when we hand our knife and fork in or when he returns. And that day we will be held accountable for. So we're living in a generation that doesn't have any regulation of truth. So therefore it doesn't consider tomorrow. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow, for tomorrow we die. So this goes at today. Mankind now has feet of clay. The foundations are wrong, so therefore we can only collapse. Mankind has made, mankind has made lies its refuge and falsehood its hiding place. And that's being multiplied. Now how have we done that? Because we are in a world that is unfamiliar with righteousness. When was the last time you heard righteousness preached on? I don't want to know, but I know Ian and I had a chat about that just two days ago, three days ago. And I think we both came down to the conclusion, was it Ian, we'd only ever heard one sermon each? Thanks, brother. I hope this isn't your first one, but if it's your first one, you're hearing it now. On righteousness. See, the world suppresses the truth. In fact, it shouts it down and it shuts it down, which is what this lady was doing to me four years ago in an evangelical congregation, trying to shut me down. Because I was speaking truth at that time, but it wasn't popular. So, the truth is suppressed and there is no direction to turn, no firm foundation to seek except darkness to consider, to, to move further into. Isaiah talks about that darkness that the world moves in just before he talks about a child that's going to be born in Isaiah 9. A world in darkness turns its hands up to heaven and shakes its fist at God. But there's going to be a son born that's going to bring light into the world. It's a great Christmas sermon. So remember God's ways. What we need is a God-sized view of mankind's comings and man-sized going. goings. We need the view through his lenses, his binoculars, so to speak. So I have this imagination. I've got a few things I imagine. Um, and I just, just consider a very large, I mean a massively large circus tent. And suspended in the middle of the tent is, is just a little seat that the acrobats sit on. Well, I don't know, 10, no, it wouldn't be 10, it'd probably be 30 metres above the ground. Massive tent. God's sitting on that little, that little uh, swing that's suspended ever so high. And underneath the Lord, he's watching all that's going on. He's watching the lions, he's watching the elephants, he's watching the clowns, he's watching the, 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 the acrobats, he's watching all, all the things that's going on in a ring in the middle of the circus. But he's also watching the comings and going, people going in and out of the tent. He's watching a little kid over in one part of the one part of the rose that's crying and another mother trying to grab a little boy who's running away and, and, and dad chatting to his daughter. God's watching all these things. We need his view of mankind so that he's got the, he's got the best view. He's got the panoramic view. We only see the child crying or the, or the clown falling over. But God's got the big picture and he understands how all this is coming together. 
That's what we're doing tonight. We're trying to grasp a God-sized view. Now, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. One has seduced us and the other has saved us. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord tells us in Genesis 2, there are two trees in the Garden of Eden, um, but you shall surely not, you, you surely shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for you will die. You will die. Now, there are only two trees named. Two, that's all. There's a stack more, but those two are named. One has seduced us, the other has saved us. See, what we're doing, we're living in a world that's not eating from the tree of life. We're living in a world that is eating from the tree of death. How do I know what tree I'm eating from? It's not hard. I'm not a horticulturalist. I'll give you a tip there, guys. I know an orange tree and I know a lemon tree. After that, I struggle. Truth. You recognise a tree by the fruit it's got on it or the fruit that falls from it. So, if I'm eating from a tree, source of my knowledge, source of my understanding, and dripping from that tree, falling from that tree is mercy, compassion, love, grace, forgiveness, patience, kindness, charity, I'm eating from the tree of life. But if I'm eating from a tree that's got anger, resentment, bitterness, lust, greed, um, disorder, and that list goes on, blaming, accusations, I'm eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because I'm being taught evil. You don't get taught evil from the tree of life. You only get taught life. Now, I have to become a spiritual fruit picker to work out which tree I'm eating from. In the Garden of Eden, I think the first fruit that fell in Genesis 3, after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was shame. Of course, they went and clothed themselves. Then maybe the second fruit that, that fell was blame. Because Adam blamed Eve, and, or Eve, Eve blamed Adam. No, Adam blamed Eve, didn't he? It was that order. And then they hid from God. Hiding from God was the next fruit. That was a fruit of shame. But here's another hint. Satan was expelled from heaven down to earth. Evil. Satan was expelled to heaven, down to earth. He read it in Isaiah, he read it in Ezekiel, he read it in Revelation. Because of his pride. So if I'm getting information that I think is gold and, and, and other people haven't got it, I'm, I'm getting filled with pride. That information isn't coming from the tree of life because the tree of life is humble. God resists the proud and he's attracted to, 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 to the humble. If I'm getting proud about the knowledge that I'm receiving, that's knowledge from the fruit of tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Look at the fruit that's falling from the tree. Now, in 1975, 1976, 1977 and 1981, I trained for teaching. I trained to be a purveyor of fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It did not teach me compassion, joy, love, righteousness, uh, patience, kindness, the things of the tree of life. But it didn't teach me evil either. It just taught me good things to teach. Do you understand that there's that distinction? But the problem is, in learning the good things from the tree of knowledge, is it invites you to learn more good things. So that before I started to, to do my teaching course, teachers only had to do two years training. By the time I got to the course, it was three years training. By the time I finished, I wanted teachers to have four years training. So you go from a two-year diploma to a three-year diploma to a four-year degree. And then, then you go to masters and then you go to honours and then you go to PhDs. And the tree of knowledge rewards each level even more. You get more and more honour and it used to be you got higher pay. But there's so many people in there around with degrees nowadays that it's still out of work. The degree doesn't necessarily get your work anymore. Can you see, if you've got a PhD, you've got a master's, you've got a... <clears throat> you got an honest degree, it's a higher level than the person that doesn't have those degrees. So pride comes in. But that's not how God judges us. Understand the grasp and the source of the knowledge and any you understand the source of the knowledge, you'll understand whether you need to be suspicious of it or take it on board. There are two trees in the Garden of Eden. One has seduced us, one has saved us. But the Lord also tells me in Isaiah 35 that the path of holiness it's a highway of holiness and it doesn't have a line down the centre because there's no two-way traffic. There's only one direction. Jesus, not long before he went to the cross, Jesus set his face resolutely to Jerusalem in Luke 9 and people laughed at him and they mocked him. But guys, that's where he's on a path of holiness. He's on a path of righteousness. That's the path we're on if we're following Jesus. We set our face resolutely to Jerusalem. And we don't expect the approval of those around us because those people don't understand why we're going to Jerusalem. The city of peace, that's what it means. The new heaven and new earth, it'll be a new Jerusalem. It's also the city of death, isn't it? It's a city of self-death, Jerusalem. So there's a path that we're all on and it's the highway of holiness. Don't expect people's approval, but this is God's ways. So the refuge of lies. Love on its own, where there is no righteous reckoning, legitimises immorality. Love itself has become the arbiter of truth, wisdom and morality. Oh, sorry, truth, wisdom, morality. Uh, is indeed there a love so pure that is there in, is indeed there a love so pure that sin is legitimised? Because what we say, the justification for homosexual marriage, let alone relationships, it's loving. So therefore, it's good. But I want to say no. We're going to discuss that. Love on its own, where there is no reckoning legitimises equality. 
Well, that is only a redressing of immorality. Gender fluidity, this is terrible. Well, not that the rest isn't, but listen to this. So gender fluidity has now become wise and legitimate. Twelve months ago, I was at a conference in St Andrew's House, a teaching conference, education. Now, this this statistic was given at the conference. So I'm assuming it's a 2016 statistic because I got it in 2017 and I don't know where it stands 2018. But it's not old, okay? So school children that change their sexes, this gender fluidity that's in the society nowadays, school children, I don't know about people over 18, this is a, this is a, a, a statistic of somebody between 4 and 18 has a 25% suicide rate. 25%. And we want to worship me because worshipping me is right. There's no truth to measure what's right and wrong against, is there? So the truth, God is love. It is his fabric, but it is not his measuring line. There is righteous and unrighteous love. I'm not saying there is an unrighteous love. I don't understand it. But it's there. The issue isn't the fact it's love. The issue is whether it's righteous or unrighteous. Wickedness can never be equal to righteousness. In fact, they're opposites. Not even through love. But the world is yelling otherwise. God made them male and female. This is forever the DNA imprint. So God's fabric, God's truth and God's judgments. He's still sitting there, isn't he, in that, that, uh, that swing at the top of the, the, top of the uh, circus tent, looking, knowing this. See, God is love. That's 1 John 4.16. That's his fabric. That's what he's made out of. It's his love. It's best as I can put two and two together because God doesn't have a body, but it's in human terms. Love does not permit injury to those they love or else it is not love. Love takes an injury for the, for the loved one, but does not give it. This is God's fabric that is shown at the cross. The tree of life. Because from the cross, these days we get, we see love, compassion, um, self-dying, sacrifice. Uh, that list goes on. Mercy, kindness, forgiveness. That's the tree of life. Because the tree of life was destroyed when, when, uh, when the world was flooded. The new tree of life is the cross of Christ. So, Jesus tells me, I will make, me- make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. How does God measure? He measures with justice and righteousness. The love is not his measurement. Love is how he operates. That's his fabric. God operates through justice and righteousness and those words are bed partners. They are very, very close in their meaning and and in their origins and they often appear together in the Bible. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness. That's God's intention. Judgment isn't founded on righteousness these days. It's founded on what I want for me. 
time is going to come when judgment will again be founded on righteousness and then let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Everybody's going to get the same fair go. There's going to be no bias. And how does he judge the world in righteousness? Judgments made on love are not how he operates. Now let's tie this together at a statistical level. I did a word search. I can do word searches. They're really easy now. You don't have to sit down and laboriously go through concordances and turn pages over. Bible Gateway does it for you. Okay, three, three of the common, three of the common, um, whoops, <laughs> slippery fingers. Um, three, three of the common Bible versions. Okay, King James Version. 510 times righteousness appears in King James. Uh, love appears 442 times. 494 times in NIV. And that would be the current NIV, not the early ones, I think. I don't think they go back to the 84 anymore. Or the 78. So that would be the current one. Um, 494 times righteousness appears. Love appears 686 times. Now, in the RSV, Revised Standard Version, righteousness appears 602 times and love is 643 times. So... You know what's important in somebody by what you keep hearing them talk about? What comes out of them? Now, out of God's word, righteousness and love occur almost equally. And they're really large in their appearance. But, John, you're with me. I need some mathematical help in a minute, I think, mate. All right. I might need a bailout. In Greek, there are four words that are translated as love. But there's only one word that's translated as righteousness. So at a mathematical level, I can divide love by four. Did I get that right? Makes sense? So if there are 510 words of righteousness in the King James Version, I can get that down to 110 with love, 110.5. Is that right? Help me. Thank you. 110.5. Now, that seems to indicate through the frequency of both these words that they're important. But in sheer volume, love does not beat righteousness. The thing that the Lord talks about most of these two it would appear at a numerical level the Lord is concerned with righteousness. God's priority. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Now, you're very patient, kind people. Thanks, guys. I'm going to talk another story out of my imagination. So, we've got God. He's sitting on a seat. It's a big seat. I presume he's a fairly large man. Except he's not a man at all. But this is just putting it in human terms. He's sitting on a seat. And that seat's a throne. That's just correct. It's what he should be on. He's on a throne. And that throne's built on two, pier, two piers. There are two bricks underneath that, that throne. One brick has got righteousness stamped on it and the other brick has got justice stamped on it. They're underneath the throne. They're keeping it off whatever's underneath them. 
The throne is his basis, as his basis is built on righteousness and judgment. They are his foundation. But love and faithfulness go before him. So continue the imagination for a moment. There's God sitting on his throne. You've got two massive bricks. One's called righteousness, the other's called faithfulness. Uh, the other's called justice, righteousness and justice isn't it, underneath him. But love precedes him. Love goes out from him. Love is in front of him. And he's surrounded in faithfulness and love. So I, I just imagine the sort of, in some kind of ether-like waft, that love and faithfulness is going completely around the Lord. But the love and faithfulness is upheld by his righteousness and his justice. So what do you see when you see God? You see love, because that's what's coming out from him. That's his fabric. But that fabric is sustained by his righteousness. That fabric is sustained by his justice. It's underneath him. You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Fabric of love sits upon faithfulness. Now, a bit late at night for this, but twist your imagination back now. His throne is not founded on righteousness. His throne is actually founded on that which is the opposite of righteousness, which is wickedness. What do we get? If his throne was founded upon wickedness, we would expect one it to collapse. Side divided against itself cannot stand. We would expect hatred, jealousies, betrayals, dissensions, angers, lusts, wars to precede him. Wouldn't we? Because that's what wickedness is. But we don't get that because he's founded on righteousness. We must grasp the depth, the significance, the priority and the security of righteousness that is a life that is lived well. Let's tie this together. Isaiah 32. If you're over mind when you get home tonight, but it might be too late, sit down. I hope it's not. Read Isaiah 32. First 10 or 11, 12 verses. It's all about what life looks like when righteousness rules. When the king will rule with righteousness and rulers will rule in justice. First one. Then it goes and explains it. Righteousness rules love. Love does not rule righteousness. Righteousness measures love. God does not judge this world by love. He has offered offered salvation to it by love. But his final judgments are founded upon his righteousness. So we live in a world now where we need courage because love means speaking up for righteousness, turning on the light in darkness while everyone else is hushing, shh, flicking that light out. We must love our neighbour enough to say no to that which harms them. That's what love is, saying no to that which harms them, not allowing them to harm themselves. Now, if they then go and harm themselves, that's a deep sadness, but you have shown them love in trying to rescue them from injury because Jesus is clothing people in righteousness Sorry, Jesus clothing people in righteousness is the offer of his love. That's what love gives. It offers righteousness. Now, Romans 1 is a powerful passage, but it's really spoken on in this context, I think. 
Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things but also approve of those who practice them. It's God's righteous decree. It's heavy. It deserves death. But we live in a world that continues to approve of such practice. Now, I want to finish on a high note. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. See, what Christ does for me on the cross, his love takes him to the cross that his righteousness can wrap me up. We get the garment of mantle, the mantle or the garment of righteousness placed over us. So when the Lord's sitting up there, when the Father's sitting up there in that circus tent and he's gazing down on how many people are inside that tent, he sees Jeff Taylor and he doesn't see Jeff Taylor with all his wounds and all his wickedness, he sees Jeff Taylor clothed in the righteousness of his Christ. It's not that which I earn. We all know that. It's not that which anybody can earn. But he's put on me the mantle of righteousness because that's what Christ's love on the cross does. Thank you, Lord, that he doesn't look at Jeff Taylor. Forever the end of the matter. Love does not rule, but righteousness does. That's what's missing in his debate. Love does not rule, but righteousness does. Love is God's fabric. It surrounds him as faithfulness does. But his foundation is always righteousness. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you've never, ever left us without the information, Lord, that we need. You've never, ever left us that we should walk a path of wickedness and not turn to your whole way of holiness. O oh Lord, that our hearts would each be strong enough to navigate the highway of holiness, Lord. Our hearts that will sustain us to be strong, firm and steadfast. As we approach Jerusalem, your city, the city of peace. Amen.